This is Caroline J. Miller. Welcome to Brew Theology. All right, welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan. Janelle is here along with Mark, Terry, and Andy. What's going on, everybody? Not a whole lot. All right, that was enthusiastic. <laughs> so tonight we're going to be talking about St. Patty's. It's coming, and by the time you listen to this, it'll have already been St. Patrick's Day. So that you can use this reference for next year as you get ready if your your community wants to do this. Uh, so we're going to probably have a lot of rabbit trails, but luckily we're not doing this after St. Patty's, after we're drinking. So we're, we're, we're right now we are fully sober. I'm on my first sip, and I got some water here. We've even been brewing some coffee tonight. So we brew coffee and tea, which means if you want to be a part of the Brew Theology podcast. You don't have to drink beer. You think, these guys, that's all they do is drink beer. That's not true. We have people who come and they drink water and tea and energy drinks. And if there's coffee at the pub, which they're... Yeah, that's right. So look us up on brewtheology.org and you can you can partner. You can just be like the guys in Atlanta who started... Woohoo! Go Atlanta. Hey, Atlanta. Hot Atlanta. And we're on social media. Check that out. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The only one that's weird to find is... Twitter's brew underscore theology. The rest is at brew theology. And this is a microcosm of what we do every single week at the pub. So we're going to jump in to and some. If you really love us and you don't want to start your own group, but you'd like to support us, uh, find us on Patreon. We would love to have your support. Yeah. Every little bit makes a big difference for us. And that, that's the stuff I have to remind myself that people actually will support. And I always <laughs> feel bad like saying, hey, give us money. By the way, we don't make money. I think we broke even last year. I don't. So if you so. like, if you like, we have all this equipment. We go to festivals, and you know. So if if you want to give us money for maybe we could buy our spouses a mocha at the end of the month, that'd be nice. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. But if you want a free koozie, because we like to give away free koozies, go to Wild Goose Festival. We'll be there. Yeah. Anything else before we start? I think we that's start it. and dive in. Okay. Um, so we got uh, leprechauns. We got pots of gold. Lucky charms. We got Mardi Gras revisited on steroids, green beer, bar fights, U2s, Sunday, Bloody Sunday parades, boycotting parades, which I know some people like to boycott the parades. Three to four leaf clovers, redheaded dudes with these pasty white chests ready for a sunburn and river dancing to folk music. That's what we're going to be talking about. No, we're not. No, That's what you think about when you think of St. Patrick's Day. So let's start easy before we dive in. I know all that was probably more than what you've handled in your lifetime. I don't know. I can't speak for everybody around the table. But when you think of St. Patrick's and your favorite traditions, don't go into too much detail because this could be embarrassing. And this is on the internet. What are your favorite traditions? Were they in your 20s, 30s, teens, now? Are we supposed to remember these? Nah. The, these are things in which your friends would tell later, like a mythical story like St. Patty's. Yeah. Up on a mountain. <laughs> In my 20s, it was any excuse to drink. I liked St. Patrick's. Any excuse to drink. <laughs> yeah, college days, it was definitely uh, lots of green beer. Uh, these days, corned beef and cabbage, you can't really go wrong with that. So it's about the food and the fellowship and getting people together around a table. Yeah, for me, it was pretty much St. Pat. I didn't have too many Irish people around where I grew up. So as a consequence, we didn't really celebrate it too much, but we certainly appreciated the green beer. Didn't know too much about what St. Patty's was about, but we certainly appreciated the, the partying and everything else that was part of it. Yeah, I was such a good Catholic. I had no idea about St. Patrick. 
So I got to say, growing up as a Protestant Southern Baptist from the state of Texas, and we haven't done intros, we will in a second do brief ones, but this was not a thing at all because it involved mostly just uh, debauchery and it was Catholic. So that's like double whammy. People who are going to hell and they're drinking, you're going to the, you know, the other level of hell as far as we were concerned. But I would say in most recent years, I've, <laughs> well, I'll even go back to 16 years when Lauren and I got married I said one one of those uh, St. Patty's days. I go, hey, like I've never I've never had green beer, and she said, well, really? Like you didn't? Not even in college. I didn't do it in college. I know exactly. Everybody's looking at me like at you're Baylor. You I've have never, not even. I don't think I've ever Baylor. had green beer. So, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then it was like a slow, gradual thing. So the older I get now, I'm like, I can't wait for St. Patty's. But by the time you're listening to this, ask me how I'm doing the next day. <laughs> Because uh, I go out with a really good Irish Catholic friend of mine, and uh, he treats this as his birthday. He treats this as Christmas, and so we're going to have a good time. Awesome. I don't really have any traditions other than corned beef and cabbage. Uh, that was something that we always did. We always did like ham and cabbage and potatoes and carrots after holidays, so corned beef kind of fits into that vein. But usually I forget to buy it early enough to soak it, so then it's usually just kind of the slab in a pot, and it I don't always quite get get it's, there. It's got to be really soft. I know. Yeah. That's, that's why like butter is so important, I have too. one. You got you to put butter on that. Well, Lots of butter. Baird's lactose intolerant, so I can use fake butter. There you go. <laughs> I, like the, I like the fat on there. So we're going to do brief intros to now you know who was saying what during that time. We did that on purpose. I don't know if you know. So now they're going to recognize voices later, put two and two together. So you guys know my story, Southern Baptist, evangelical, not anymore, very big tent Jesus guy, Anabaptist, UMC, Jewish, Pentecostal, little processy here and there. So an evolving Anabaptist method, Jewcostal, follower of Jesus. And here I am with my friends. All right, this is Andy. I haven't been on a while, but I grew up in an interfaith household. My dad's family is all Jewish. My mom's family is all Christian. Um, I identify as a Christian and as a Methodist, but I also butt my head against the Methodist church and work for the institution. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to be back in, on the podcast tonight. Yes, my name is Terry. I uh, grew up in a Lutheran family, very, very traditional. In fact, pretty much most of our family life evolved or revolved around the church, everything from Sunday to pretty much most of the week, including school, uh, was at a Lutheran church. It was something that uh, I very much treasure that was in my life. It was something that I never quite understood. It was not really quite a part of what I believed. There was just some things that just didn't work for me, but it worked great for my family. So for the longest time, I thought it was a gene thing, that I just didn't quite get the gene that everybody else had. But over time, I've come to appreciate and very much respect their, 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 their faith, but I've kind of moved on, not to a higher place or lower place, just moved on to a different place. Uh, and I'm, spirituality has always intrigued me in so many different ways, all the different religions. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to, um, to investigate a lot of the different religions. Um, and I treasure all of their different belief systems. And there just seems to be this golden thread that goes through all of them that I totally very much appreciate. But this sort of thing that we're doing right now, I think is the greatest thing in the world, to be able to share that passion I think all of us innately have about this sort of thing. 
Thanks. Um, I'm Janelle. I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene in the heart of the Midwest, and so a pretty conservative, edging towards fundamentalist type faith. Um, we moved to Colorado about five and a half years ago, and it was the best thing that could happen. I've served in an independent church um, and now just carry the label of progressive Christian. I do have a small home gathering on Monday nights and uh, walk with a lot of people through faith transition and run brew theology with Ryan. So it's pretty awesome. You're pretty awesome. You're pretty awesome. <laughs> oh, no, you stop it. <laughs> I'm Mark, and uh, I grew up a, uh, a perfunctory Catholic. Uh, we just kind of kind of went through the motions. Uh, and uh, today I am I'm fascinated with religion in uh, an, an, an innate, uh, sense. In other words, I believe that religion is something that is part of our instinct. And uh, all my reading and stuff, I, I, uh, I, I feel pretty certain about that, that it's a, there's, a, there's an instinct towards it. It has to do with our social instinct. But anyway, I'll, I'll, keep, you, I'll keep you notified in case I figure it all out. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you guys for being here tonight. And if you want to do this particular curriculum in your community, we have that available along with a plethora, yes, a plethora, a plethora of other topics. So this is relevant for us, and it will be again for you in a year from now, by the way. <laughs> now, uh, when it comes to the life of St. Patrick, this mythical giant and yet a real figure, I'm just kind of curious from what we know, from what little we know, or from who knows how much reading you all have done on him on everything from Wikipedia to books or the cliff notes that we have here. What do you find most interesting about this person's life and their identity? And I know this could go on in many different directions, but specifically, are there things that pop out to you? Well, for me, um, uh, again, the, the, the monastic uh, lifestyle, something, something I've been reading that, that uh, and I, uh, hopefully I've got this right, where uh, the monasteries of Ireland uh, were community-oriented. They weren't uh, hermit-type monasteries, um, and they weren't even enclosed within themselves as a community. They extended outward into the community, and uh, it was, uh, that's neat. You know, I don't know exactly. You sent me a URL, I guess it was yesterday, that, and I don't know, was it the Catholic Wikipedia that, that had the story? It's what was that? Kind URL of like Advent. Me? Uh, let me, I'll look it up here for you. Because it was, it had some incredible information because, of course, we talked about this last week in last week's Brew Theology meeting, but you sent this to me before this, so I was able to get in a lot more depth. So it gave me a totally different perspective of who St. Patty was. I mean, in my mind, again, coming from a non-Irish uh, area that we didn't really talk about it that much, it was like, well, he was the saint that drove out the snakes. It's just about all I really knew about St. Patrick. So that was an incredible article. There's a few things I'm sure we'll get into as we go on, but... Uh, a lot of information about miracles and their importance and his and his whole mission and what it was all about. So 
Anyway, if, if, yeah, I don't that, know if you have a chance did. to show that. That resource is newadvent.org, and it is, it is kind of a Catholic encyclopedia, and I've used it for many years just to get a wider perspective on uh, saints or different types of theology, and it's a great resource, so I highly recommend checking it out and looking up something you're interested in. I think what I appreciated about that site, too, was it, it didn't, it didn't have an academic in there saying, this is fact, this is the historical, and this is the mythical legend part. It was all in there together. So as a reader, you're just trying to like figure out who this guy is in his entirety. So we, all, we focus so much in the modern world of, did it really happen or not? Did he really mm. drive out snakes? Or is there a better, a meaning, more meaningful purpose behind driving out the snakes or being on top of the mountain? You know, Le- Legends are not about facts. Oh, interesting. Well, I think that was the disappointing thing for me about the article, though. I didn't see anything about driving out snakes. They must have forgot that part. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things for me, it's just a really fantastic story in that, like, it has pirates, and he's captured, and there's, you know, he's held as a slave, and he has this conversion experience in these dreams, and there's a lot of depth to the story that we miss. Um, But yeah, like, the fact that Patrick, he he was Romanized, he spoke Latin, he wasn't somebody who spoke the indigenous language, um, there are all these things that we assume about Patrick that aren't really there, and the things that are there are, yeah, they're really interesting. Well, he's a Roman citizen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it was. A, he was. The Britons were a Roman colony. And, yeah, mm-hmm. under Oak. Uh, Where is it? Uh, Claudius. Hmm. Claudius. Even cha- changing changing his name as as a missionary, as somebody who is like, if I'm going to go to this land. Which the fact that he went back to that land is to me the most impressive piece. Like it is a huge story of, of gospel centrality of I'm going to forgive these people and I'm going to go to them and I'm going to take on their identity and love them. And during a time of turmoil, I, to me, that's so inspiring, regardless if the whole thing happened the way they said it happened or not. That story inspires me, I think, to go, okay, who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to go back to? Who do I need to not just do it because it's the right thing to do, but like this guy he he lived there. That's different than saying, I'm going to send somebody a text or send him a letter like, no, you went back to a place where these people are not your people. And literally enslaved you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if that, you know, if that doesn't light a fire underneath someone on St. Patty's Day to drink another beer, I don't know what will. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else about his life that you find intriguing? I think I did read somewhere that he was really good with animals, not just the snakes, but in general, which reminds me a little of kind of the St. Francis mythology and um, the recognition of all creation. And I think it's really interesting that he kind of, that, that little fragment gets attached to him as well. Or maybe, I think actually Francis was later, so maybe he took it from St. Patrick you know. know, I got to wonder. Um, this this is something a little bit off the topic, but um, you know, it's it's mentioned that uh, in his uh, in his preaching or evangelizing uh, that he incorporated uh, Celtic tradition with uh, you know the Christian message, and uh, and I'm just wondering how prevalent was that? I mean, it was something certainly implied in what I was reading, but. Uh, uh, is he is it was he was he uh, fairly unique in that way, or well, I'd say compared to Rome, absolutely. Um, so I mean, the Roman model was you're going to think the right thing and do the right thing and listen to us, um, and it was very much that colonial model and that empire based model. And Patrick didn't use that model. I mean, his was much more praxis oriented. It was we're going to live together in community and experience this other thing. And so I, I, 
I, we asked this last week, maybe his captivity led him to that, to be more receptive to more indigenous beliefs. I, I don't know where that comes from, but it was very different than the traditional Roman model. And from what I understand, even the infrastructure of Ireland alone, the fact that Rome never got there, never put their uh, roads in and their infrastructure, the communal way of living and the Celtic way of living, uh, it was easier for him to, to have that kind of community manifest in that way. Uh, so whereas if he was across, across the water you probably wouldn't have had that opportunity. There's one thing, I mean, uh, you know, with the old Pax Romana uh, before Christianity, one of the ways they achieved that was to allow different people to do their own thing. You know, you, as long as you pay your taxes and, you know, you... you uh, 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 but uh, how was it uh, after Rome was Christianized? Did they... Did, how how much did they force religion on people, or did was it the same old thing where it's like you know just pay us our tribute and and you're okay? Anybody know? Well, it kind of depends. I mean, it's a long <laughs> history of acceptance by the Roman Church. I mean, it started right. from it started from the common people. It didn't start at the top. It's well, let me take that back. Paul was a Roman citizen and was considered a Pharisee, which along the lines of of the learned, he was considered to be, you know, at that level. But in terms of being a uh, a ruling part of the ruling class or something, that's not what he was. Was so it kind of started from the bottom up. Is basically what happened. In fact, what's kind of interesting about that story, and when we're talking about Saint Patrick, it went just the opposite. The first thing that Saint Patrick did in every case was to find and actually zero in on the leaders, the nobility, the people, the nobility, the, the right. people that ran the, the the head druids in a lot of cases, even right, which were the ones that were the spiritual leaders, the teachers of that you know of, of that particular of those communities. Right? right, they were the ones that were looked up to. Those are the ones that he went after. Right, he went after and he tried to explain to them and make them see the benefit or help them to understand the benefit. Tell his story to them, and that's how it pretty much spread. Actually, so it kind of started from a different, from a from a different direction that we that we saw Christianity in in the, in the Roman. That's times, the best. That's the best sort of propaganda is go to the opinion leaders. Well, that's uh, from what I understand. Even the Reformation, and this is off topic, but it's it's similar in the same vein that Luther uh, wrote uh, the Bible according to the language of the leaders who could read versus the people. Yes, it was a trickle-down effect, but ultimately it was for the nobility. And honestly, it's it's just good organizing practice. Um, a lot of community organizing is power analysis, is mapping out who in the community can I get on my team and get them to get more people on my team. I mean, he was doing community organizing before we had that language to it, but that's exactly what this is. Well, and a lot of the times, too, when you're talking about something of the spiritual nature... Um, so many people in those earlier times, there was the leader that got the message out. They're the ones that could read. They're the ones that could interpret what what was necessary. So they were considered the authority. It wasn't a personal sort of a thing at that point in time. It was more of a, this is how it is. Very, very, very much different. In a lot of cases, we see a lot of the same thing today in some of the societies, but... Except our leader can't read. Ah. <laughs> no <Leave>. comment. <laughs> Leave our leader alone. Hey, wait, wait. <laughs> Rule number one. No soapboxes allowed. <laughs> we do make Trump jabs occasionally. I would actually, by the way, side note, anybody listening right now who is a Trump supporter and voter, I would love to talk to you and have you on the show. That would be great. So there's that. Moving on. Moving on. 
<laughs> so during the time of Patrick, the, the church was going through kind of this wrecking ball season of sorts. They were the renegades, the renegades, this kind of Celtic movement. And it was, they were called to live in this subversive way to empire the way of Rome. And I'm, I'm curious, I know there's a lot there within that statement, but is that needed today? And if so, what does that look like in according to your your particular views? Well, someone on our table, I mean, his first response to this was, we always need this. We always need this element um, of subversion, of, of resisting and pointing out what's wrong and making it clear like that you're not going to get away with this. So I, th- I think it's really important what it looks like for Christianity, I think, is a little more complicated in our context um, because so many of us have very different kinds of views and we all call ourselves Christians and probably question each other's Christianity in that as well. And so, um, I don't know, I hate to Bible quote, but Micah 6, 8, you know, have mercy, walk humbly, totally going to forget the rest of it, but just doing those things and putting them into action is one of the ways that we resist. This was clearly an, an act. This wasn't just adhere to these doctrines and these tenets of faith. This is I don't a, a know. movement. I mean, I don't think that would have made sense to them in the way that you kind of gave us the research here in the passage. It was all about, at this point in time, uh, transforming communities and, and helping them be self-sufficient and helping them meet their needs and like talk wouldn't have done them any good because they needed to eat. And I think that's what's difficult today when trying to address this specific question. When I think of a place like Denver and even this neighborhood right here, Platt Park, Denver, very affluent. This is middle upper class. Do they need anything? And I think that you look at the culture back then, the 400s versus today, you could say small town USA, maybe this kind of a movement would work, but here in this neighborhood, I don't, I don't think it would, because people don't need anything. Well, then also there's a, there's a power structure. I, I, what, what, when, you, when you mentioned this, I'm thinking of the times uh, there was a, a, a power vacuum, basically, in uh, Rome. The, uh, the, 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 uh, the locus of power shifted to the east. And I'm wondering what form of authority did was a uh, uh, Patrick ordained under uh, under and uh, who 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 was the one who who designated authority and was that subversiveness you were talking about simply a, a fact of the, of the you know that uh, that the the church was weak in the west I don't know the name I've got a book over here by George Hunter called the Celtic Wave Evangelism which is a great resource in all this um and I'll try and look it up. But he was sent by a cardinal. So he was sent right. by a leader in the Catholic Church. This was very much the institution was saying, yes, we buy into this. Um, that being said, they also pulled their support later on in his life because he was not uh, Romanized and civilized enough. I had air quotes there um, <laughs> in the way that he was approaching the evangelism and the work that he was supposed to be doing. But he was definitely sent by the institution, by the power structure to what? go to was go it, to was the, that the, the uh, Was that the... Uh, the, the uh, thing with the uh, Benedictines, the the confrontational. I don't know. That was inferred, right? Here, yeah. the synod like, of Whitby, right? Yeah. Yep. Seven. What was it? Seven, it's six sixty four. Six sixty four. Yeah. Yep. Couldn't be seven seventy four. 
So that was actually the time before Augustine, which is really where so much of the Catholic doctrine came about. I mean, the idea of original sin, so many different things that we now accept as being kind of a part of what Christianity is about, and certainly the Catholic movement. It was still very much in development at that point in time. And and he was actually sent, which is when you think about the times, he was actually sent from England to Rome. I mean, he actually met the Pope. He actually got blessed by the Pope for this particular mission. So that's a pretty heady movement, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, and responsibility. Uh, they basically recognized what he was going into, and they, they, they felt the need to, you know, to, to basically have that kind of person or that person that was going to be able to have that power and that, that, that push or that personality that could persevere through this. So it was extremely interesting time. There's a lot of morphosis going on at that time of the Catholic Church. I, I hadn't heard about going to Rome. Uh, I thought this was all a, a British thing. But uh, so then there there was an, uh, enough authority to uh, to set things rolling. It kind of reminds me of like a major denomination, and every denomination is different. And you send somebody to plant a church. And if the church is small enough, they don't really care what you do. But the minute that church becomes influential and the people start being moved by this particular charismatic leader of sorts, then that's when they're like, oh, wait, what are you, what are you doing over there? And I, I think that's probably what happened here. Like, who cares what happens in Ireland? Oh, man, stuff's working there. Well, how's it working? Well, we're not controlling how it's working anymore. And that's, but that's how institutions always are. Right. Inherently conservative. For the most part, yeah. yeah. Kind of got to be for Sabravo. Yeah. So, what, yeah, what else as far as subversive movements, actions? I know, Andy, you're very involved in political, social advocacy within the city. What kinds of things are uh, church leaders, nonprofits, people of faith, interfaith doing that's uh, bucking the system? Um, I mean, a lot of the work happening right now is around forming communities that are different, that are still coming together to just um, engage, similar to what we do with brew theology, but along all kinds of lines of difference, whether they be racial or economic. Um, even just having that kind of dialogue, as as simple as it sounds, is pretty radical within our current social structures. Mm -hmm. And so it once again makes you think back to this kind of cultic model of community-based, uh, praxis-oriented work. Um, it's the same thing. It's bringing together groups that don't really come together, listening, engaging, and then trying to create some sort of truth out of that. Um, so that that's how we're seeing mobilization happening right now, very similar to these ways. You know, that's actually kind of a neat idea, is uh, start by working together. One of the things is they, they will keep us from talking together so we don't work together. Mm -hmm. And so we, we want to say, okay, well, let's talk together. We should work together, and then we don't need to worry about talking. <laughs> anyway, that's Kind of a side, but <laughs> well, even like if you do like a Habitat for Humanity house, if people mm. come together and you're rubbing shoulders and you know getting your fingers bruised and whatnot with somebody with a totally different faith construct, and you have people who are very evangelical Southern Baptists from my heritage with uh, those heretic UMCers, you know, right. I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm, <laughs> that was for Andy. Yeah, but 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 it's funny. Like when you, when they're on the roof and they're doing all these things, none of that shit matters. Well, and I think we see that in like some of the natural disasters that we've had, where people of all stripes are coming together to do the work. Now, the moment you pull them back out and interview them, it starts to get ugly again, but they can do the work together. And I think that's one of the really cool things about what we're doing is trying, the table's here, anyone can come. 
anyone can talk and we're going to do our best if you're willing to do your best to stay at the table for the discussion. Um, because I think, I don't know, that's just something that I've noticed on our local NPR station lately. They're working really hard to get people from both sides of the aisle to come together and have conversation. And I actually had the thought earlier this week, like, man, do I have to listen to the other side? And I'm like, wait a minute. Yes, I do. I have to listen to the other side because that's the only way that this changes is if we are having finding ways to have and make dialogue happen um, in our communities right now. Because if we don't, I, as these guys, some of these guys were at my table on Thursday, like I'm pretty pessimistic about the future at the moment. And so I think making those conversation happens is something we have to keep practicing. And I think this goes back to what Ryan was saying about um, our needs. And so you're saying Platte Park, a community that doesn't really have a lot of the material needs, like th those are met. If you're dependent on your neighbor for survival, you're much more willing to listen to your neighbor. Um, if you're in a hyper-individualized space, then you're much less likely to do that. And so I'm just curious, Ryan, as somebody who lives here, how do you kind of see that playing out? Yeah, the the physical needs. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use an example with a friend of mine, not mentioning his name, but friend of mine who grows vegetables and gives these vegetables away to everyone. Now, the, these vegetables go towards the poorest of poor in the city, people who are homeless, as well as those, by the way, who live in Platte Park or Wash Park. doesn't matter. And that's what's astounding is that when people go and they see this veggie bike in the summertime and they ask these questions, wait, wait, free? And then there's, they, they, they don't even know if they should take them. And it's awkward because I think most wealthy people, again, it's easier for some something, something to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus here. What is it easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then you have very wealthy people going, I, I can't take this. And then Craig's like, it's okay. Take what you want. And if you want to sew it forward and do something for somebody else with what you've been given, that's kind of what we're doing here. And uh, it blow, I think it blows people's mind. And so I, you, have to, you have to reframe it. And I think what I just said his name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Craig. I love you, Craig. Yeah. But yeah, but, because we've talked about this, how at first people don't know how to handle that, that gift of grace. Because that's what it is. It's a tangible gift of grace. Here's a vegetable that we've grown from our gardens. Now you can do whatever you want with it. You can, you can make your own dinner or you can give that dinner to your next door neighbor. And I think that's where the switch is. Oh, I, I receive it freely. Now how am I going to give freely? And, um, you know, it's funny. I, I talk a lot about psychology and looking at my own psychology, I know that I'm a person who would much rather pay you because that way we're square on a very superficial level and, you know, but if I feel like I owe you something, that's that's a, a hor I mean, we're getting off the topic, but it's a it's a it's a scary. Well, it's a vulnerability, yeah. and yeah. I think that in some ways, when you're in a more affluent state, you have the ability to take away that sense of unease. Um, and I'm not sure that's good. It doesn't matter how helpful you think you're being. Sometimes when you you use your uh, your funds to help with something. Um, it may feel like everything's okay, but I think it can also create awkwardness. And then that gets in the way of community and relationship. And um, I've, I've had to try, I try really hard lately to just not, like, don't make the assumption of what someone needs. Um, 
ask first what 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 will actually help you in this moment because it might not be something that I can do. That could be the difference between paternalism and being a friend. Right. Exactly. And back to you know Andy's question, I think that one of the areas, if it's not a physical need, we all are emotional beings mm-hmm. and men have a really hard time in the West being vulnerable. But having lived here now five years and, and I think it just takes time and you almost wear people out with friendship until they can finally become vulnerable with you. They could talk about their marriages. They could talk about their kids. They could talk about uh, their spouses and, and their work uh, stress that's driving stuff crazier at home. And I think that those are the times when you're like, yes, we're, we're really all the same. Regardless mm-hmm. of if you can afford to go to Sushi Den every night of the week or Taco Bell, that doesn't matter. You know, ultimately you have these uh, heartbreaks and these hopes and joys and dreams for your kids that people do want to talk about. You just got to wait and you got to, it's such a, if you're not patient, uh, you're probably not going to last long, but you got to wait for that to happen. And it's so countercultural where we are had it beat into our heads not to be vulnerable, not to create that space, not to, you know, say I'm reliant on others. I mean, we're a bootstrap society in that sense. And so, yeah, like I, I hear you and I think it's a beautiful vision and I think it's great when it works, but I don't always know how we can push that when we're fighting against so much other messaging um, culturally and socially and politically. Again, uh, uh, individualism supports the, the, the guys on top of us. And if we work together, we kind of defeat the powers that be. <laughs> you know, I think, I think one of the things that I love about our community is we've been able to, to do this in a lot of ways. Um, it, I've lived here five and a half years. It's hard to make friends in Denver. And it's hard to keep friends in Denver because Denver t- tends to be transitory. So people will move here for two or three years and you become good friends and then they leave. And that's hard, but... With Brew Theology, even though we have people coming in and out, we have a core group of people that are there. And when I'm willing to be vulnerable and open with them, that helps me be connected to them and them to be connected to me. And it creates real community, even though we may very possibly in Denver live an hour from each other in terms of traffic and driving, but yet I can find community with them. And Um, And I'm willing to make the effort like on a Saturday if we do a potluck or whatever to like take that time out and go do that because I found people that um, I can have those conversations with I can fight with and still be friends. Um, Are you saying that you and Andy have had an <laughs> argument? This is an inside, or two, you know. just a few. <laughs> inside joke. I've seen it, and they love each other. Yeah. It just goes to show that you can be like a brother and sister without <laughs> being brother and sister and still be friends at the end of the day. Yes. Yeah. Whereas with, it's funny because most people, with, if they're not family, they, you know, they get in these fights and they hold grudges and they never talk again. But you guys should Yeah, promise. if you want to witness it, you can come to Wild Goose and we'll both be there and I'm sure it will happen again. After five nights of no sleep and lots of, and lots an of, lots of beer. Con- <laughs> oh man! Uh, so yeah, any other kind of subversive ways to buck against this system, i.e., religion, po- the the political religion that we have today? Well, you know, I, I guess one that I will bring up is just what's happening around Me Too and awareness of sexual assault and discrimination. I'm I am inspired right now of how many women's voices are coming to the forefront. I want to believe that will continue. History doesn't really back that. But as long as we've got people listening, then we're going to keep talking. And I think that's that's empowering because it means we're starting to examine, is the way things 
function in my normal day to day life okay? And the answer sometimes is no, it's not. Um, we need to have everyone at the table. They need to be equally paid. They need to be equally represented. Their voices need to be heard. And when we're cutting off half of our population at the knees, actually more than half, um, then we're missing out on all of this amazing stuff that comes from those relationships and friendships and leadership and different ways of viewing the world. And so I'm excited if we can be grown up enough to let it happen in our country to see what more egalitarian um, partnership will look like and will do for us as we move forward. And I think that's key and use the word egalitarian. And so for those of you who are listening, St. Patrick's monasteries were egalitarian in nature. And so this, this does remind me too about what a friend said to me recently about the Me Too movement. He said, look on Facebook and Twitter, any thread, who's doing the talking? And so I had to look and it's women. Okay. He said, now look for the white powerful men. Where are they? And they're not there. Now, if you want women to fully have this voice, and he, and he was right, he's like, you have to have these white, powerful men to say, stand up and say, hey, Janelle, you have the floor right now, or whomever it is that is having this, because otherwise, uh, the people in power continue to have this power, and it's just this thing you do on the side, which reminds me of George W. Truett, a Southern Baptist president back in the 20th century. This is kind of a cool story. So he this woman, for the first time ever, stands up at the SBC convention, Southern Baptist Convention. This is the biggest denomination in the United States outside of Catholicism. Protestantism, it's number one. Andy, I'm sorry, it's not the Methodist. But back in the day, we prided ourselves on being the biggest. So here you had, in their heyday, this woman who stands up for the first time. You know what all the men did? They literally stood up and they turned their back on her. So George Truett goes up and grabs the mic and he pretty much chastises all these men. And this is back when that probably would have been, it was normal, you know, and he made them all turn around and listen to her. Now, regardless if they actually heard her or not, it took the president of the SBC, whom there's a seminary named after now. And I love that because that should be, that should be the story that they tell at that seminary on opening day, your first day. Cause then again, you're hey, you, you white male dudes, you're still in power. You have all the power. This is what you should do for, for women. And it might not look like it did in the 20th century, but however it looks today, make sure that their voice is heard. So again, um, the egalitarian movement, while in theory is great, it doesn't fully exist, but it's, it's starting to, you're starting to see pockets of it, which I, I appreciate as somebody who is in an egalitarian marriage. Well, an egalitarian um, relationships only happen when we're willing to walk into them and have community. And so like just cycling back around to where we were, if if you don't understand Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ experiences, do you know someone that's going through them? And if you don't, you need to go find someone and be willing to humbly um, be a part of that relationship and listen to them and hear their story and live life with them. Don't fix them. Don't try to make them more like you. You need to know them. But until we're willing to like step out of that bubble and know people in any of these categories and, and for and with men, like you can be friends with women. It, it is totally possible. Can you go like, in the elevator with a woman if the doors close and you're just there, just you and that woman? As long as you like have <laughs> cognitive control okay, like of that's... your hands <laughs> and your mouth. Yes. I mean like, like yeah. it, it's not that hard. And I, I've heard this in conversations with people I really care about, like, well, I can't even talk to a woman anymore that sorry, 
you don't get off on that. Like try harder, please. Because that's how things will change. And if you're willing to come at things with a collaborative um, perspective, then we're all going to benefit from that. Um, and I think that's what, what we need to be working on. Do you think the church is really capable of that kind of power divestment right now? Is it willing to say that or are men, if we're talking about Me Too or whatever movement we're talking about, do you think there's a willingness to do that? Do you see why we end up fighting? <laughs> he does this to me. But actually, this, I'm just really curious. This time, um, I don't know. I told, I told him at my table Thursday, I'm not in a very optimistic place right now. And I honestly would probably say no. As I watch my old denomination wrestle with this and the, the statistics of a, a supposedly egalitarian denomination are deplorable. Even in the UMC, I, I doubt you're We've at 50-50. Yeah. Um, and so I want to believe it. But let me I will say this. I'll give this caveat. I don't think it's all about gender. I think a lot of it has to do with like church growth models and the fact that we've put so many people with personality disorders into leadership and that hurts everybody that doesn't that especially will probably keep women out but it absolutely hurts the whole system because power becomes the norm then who has the most power i'm known for my power and i'm going to keep that power and i don't know i think the hearts of men and women have to be moved to make those kind of changes and i i'm not in a super optimistic place at the moment there are a lot of psychological, um, this is something, you know, again, I've been uh, kind of following, but there are a lot of psychological motivations behind religion in general. Not all religions are uh, welcoming to certain uh, psychological uh, uh attitudes or, 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 or ways of being, however you want to put that. Um, but there are certain situations, you know, we can expect a controlling type personality to be attracted to being a cop. Uh, pedophiles will want to be around kids. And people who have a neurotic need for power, they can end up preachers and officials in churches. And it's and it is just simply that the environment is uh, conducive to that. And so that is like almost a – that isn't something we will fix with theology. That's something uh, – it's, it's got to be much more basic or start a new church. You know, but it's – but it, there's a lot of that. And, it, and, it, and it's not just – you know, it, it's politics. It is – academia it is anywhere where people have power over others there are certain ways that that power is is used and and uh, and that uh, you know you got to take that into account i'm kind of curious here when it's when it comes to this egalitarian model that is a it's a theoretical dream ultimately which i think in a way our heart longs for that and around the table here i I would assume that we all, because we're even around a table together with um, different voices. But, okay, it, I thought about this recently. In order to be vulnerable with somebody else, which is what we're doing, you have to be vulnerable with yourself. But most people are unwilling to be vulnerable with themselves. So anybody in leadership, for that matter, uh, I would hate to like give somebody else 
the keys, so to speak. So Jesus gives the disciples the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And it's like, hey, I'm out of here, right? I mean, and he's vulnerable with these with these men. And he says, you're going to create this movement and do greater things than me. He's even letting women sit at his feet, doing very revolutionary things for that time. According to the model in the theology, this so for me, it's, it is very theological, right? But yet it's it's continually been, the keys have been taken back in in their own kind of, in a perverse way with people who aren't being vulnerable with themselves. Because I think if you're, if you're comfortable in your own skin and you're like looking in the mirror and like, oh, I guess I knew who I am. I guess I'm a, I'm a shit and I'm a little bit of holy and I'm a little bit salty, but I'm also good. And I'm all this and I'm okay with that. It's almost like Stuart Smalley, you know, it's SNL and <laughs> you look in the mirror and then after a while, you're like, I'm okay with Andy asking me tough questions and if I stumble through the answers and vice versa and that that's fine but it takes that takes a special kind of person how, how do you get people in power to to create the system by then creating that within themselves well I mean for me is several things number one I'm 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 the eternal optimist right I mean what I see <laughs> he right <is>. now <laughs> he really is what I see in this world is 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 an incredible amount of hope you know the fact that we're sitting here talking and and have be, the fact that we've got this kind of medium that we can share different ideas that to some people are revolutionary right they might not have heard some of it just talking about it and go you mean they're in the same room right i mean to me that's huge and 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 a big part of that is being the example of what you are in the first place instead of repeating Everything that you go going, it's a horrible world out there. It's this, well, who wants to be a part of that? Who wants to share in your vision of the world when all you can see is this thing that's just beating you down all the time and you're, and you're, and, and you're not going to go anywhere because this is how the world is. To me, it's, it's more of this idea of it's all perfect. It's my decision to see it in a particular way and it's my opportunity to see it in everybody else. And so I, I, I'm not too worried about that other person that's out there that's the boss, right? I've been the boss. I've been, you know, on the bottom of the rung. I've been a lot of different places. I'm not proud of a lot of the actions that I've taken, but I am responsible for them, and I'm willing to talk about them, right? And, and, and I think as you get older... <laughs> It's always been interesting, these groups, to see some of these people that are, you know, I'm probably the oldest at the table in most cases, right? Or in many cases. And you see a lot of these people that have these fears. I don't have, I don't, I don't worry about all this stuff about where my job is going to take me or what my job is going to be or how my kids are going to turn. I'm not saying it's a better place. It's just that I'm in a different place in my life. I'm able to kind of reflect back on that. But in the process, also see the hope of all these people that are in my life and the fact that I can, I, can learn, I can still learn from them. I can still be a part of their life. I can still, I can still open up and be, a better, be in a better place or at least move on, realize my potential by everything that's around me. So I, I think the thing that we really have to watch out for is, is going, it's, it's this world, that's just how it is. And open up to the fact there's possibilities here, folks. I see this last election as a great example of that. I have to be quite honest. I thought we had moved on further, right? I thought a lot of us entered in a little bit different place, that, that we were more accepting than, the, than what we were. The blessing is the fact that we find out that that's not quite what it is. 
it provides us that opportunity to open up and kind of go, where am I with this? Do I have some of these things? I mean, is some of that stuff I'm seeing part of what I am? So I think that's just something to consider, right? Actually, that's in that process. That's where kind of empathy begins is, is being able to look at anybody, uh, even, even our president, and say, you know, there but for the grace of God. Because, you know, I, 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 I'm, I've got all the nuttiness that anybody else has. I just manifest my own nuttiness, you know, and uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because one of the things uh, we talk about this, this is something that, you know, for at least 10, 10,000 years has been the problem ever since we uh, as, as people started gathering along the rivers and farming and becoming denser communities. We have a problem with. Being lost in the crowd, I mean, it's you know, it's a, it's a you know, the 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 alienation and the, um, and and we have a problem with strangers because most of the people around us are strangers. How do we deal with strangers? There's four ways to deal with strangers. You can uh, uh, dominate them, you can uh, submit to them, you can escape from them, or you can cooperate with them. Cooperation is the most uh, you know the, the 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 healthiest way. But those other three are all temptations. And I, I think, I do believe that egalitarianism is right if we can connect with original social instinct. Don't ask me how, but. Right. That last part is what I was going to push back on, is that's assuming kind of a place of goodwill. That's assuming that people want to meet in that egalitarian space. Um, to give the benefit of the doubt takes a lot of privilege in a lot of ways. And so I think of a lot of the young folks I work with who are dreamers or DAC recipients, there is no trust because their life is on the line. Their ability to stay here is on the line. And so it's really easy for me to say, I want to see the best in everybody, but it's also really easy for me to be able to do that and not have all the constraints of, well, the color of my skin or how I express my gender or any of those other, other things that impact, um, that that's where I struggle is because I want to tell people give the benefit of the doubt, but I also I see communities that are continually targeted, and I I can't blame them for not doing that and for saying I'm not going to play ball with you, I'm not going to try and even see your humanity right now because my humanity is under attack. And, you know, and I know that's not right or wrong. That's just uh, that's the reality for a lot of folks. Um, when I when I talk about the the good in everybody, I'm talking about a very deeply buried good. Right. I'm talking about an instinctual response and at you know my my uh, vision of original sin is self-consciousness when we were able to see ourselves as separate you know the the bible talks about uh uh god and uh and man and god and the and the guys in the garden there that they're yakking all back and forth all the time freely then original sin happens they the, the tree of knowledge all of a sudden they can discern and uh, and uh, differentiate, and uh, and that's where things go bad. And yeah, and so when we talk about things like racism, where, where are we doing? We're differentiating races, sexism, differentiating sexes. You know, I mean, we can go to the Eastern religions here because it's all a difference of of, of uh, atomizing or unifying, and. Uh, I think I, I think I think our minds are to blame. We got to stop thinking. <laughs>
here's a rabbit trail theory, and then we can shoot it and then come back on topic. But the, you reminded me the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that in, in let's say the metaphor of that would be, or what that actually the implications of that. Greg Boyd from Woodland Hills, he said this years ago and it blew my mind. He goes, well, what if that was, it wasn't so much that things are good and they're evil, but it opened up your eyes to then judge the other. So ultimately, regardless if it's true or not, not the point, the point is like the deeper meaning behind that story. Because that's what, like you're saying, that's what we do. We, we totally judge each other. So let's try not to do that. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's so easy. Let's just wave, wave the magic wand. But I, yeah, I was, I was like, man, that's, that's a great theory. It's better than all the other theories I've ever heard. Original sin and next thing you know, Eve's to blame. You know, like, oh, come on. Well, when you kind of think about it, because I know growing up in, in, in my particular faith, that was the ultimate, the last judgment, right? That was just, it's not going to get any worse. And I don't care what you did. You, you never had a clue which side of God you were on. You know, you didn't know if you're doing enough good. If I'm, maybe I'm doing too much good. I mean, there's always even that possibility that I'm doing too much of the right thing, right? I mean, there's even have, or maybe I'm not doing enough. There was always this uncertainty of where you were. So there was always that, well, you'll find out one of these days. It's yeah. called the judgment. Mm-hmm. And when you come to maybe spin it around different ways in some of these newer religions and stuff, they talk about the judgment day not being God's judgment day, it's when you stop judging, mm. which is a totally different spin on things. And all of a sudden, it puts the onus back on you to where you're over there going, okay, I get it. I'm not judge. I don't need to. I mean, it's it's always been what's caused my problems is that judgment in some way or the other. When I get to that point of the last judgment, maybe it is time to move on. You know? Yeah, I think that... I will give your optimism this, that this um, election has made me um, decide that I'm not going to sit on the sidelines and that I'm going to, um, that I'm willing, should should it come, to stand in front of someone trying to hurt one of my friends or to march in something that makes me nervous or to... Um, you know, say, say some of these things in public and say that I'm not going to be intimidated to not do them. Um, and that, it's really funny because when I first started coming to Brew Theology two and a half years ago, I would say I'm not the activist type, um, but I am the activist type. It is in my breath now to point these things out and dialogue about them but also just to say no this it's not okay i'm not going to let you slide with that excuse or that justification you've come up with you're exhibiting this and you need to deal with that and that probably doesn't make me the most popular person in the world but that's why i have ryan so (laughs) is he your lawyer Was, wasn't it too about a year ago when Ann Dunlap came to the yeah. table and she had the mic and she talked about Romans as resistance and that was I remember being very very big for you that was huge for yeah. me like I yeah. I cannot I, I see it in scripture all the time like I I flip those things over now almost automatically um, and I don't know how one speaker can do that but I thank her for it because it's really made me it's actually allowed me to like engage with the text again um, when I was in a place where I was pretty much done with the text for the most part 
Um, and so like this week in the lectionary was John 3, including John 3.16. Um, and so what do you do with John 3.16 when you were raised a little conservative evangelical? Well, you realize that the message in that chapter is about bringing light and bringing knowledge into the world that we might find this truth and find ways to transform the world that we live in. That's a totally different thing than if you don't say this prayer, you're going to hell. Um, contextualizing. Yeah, and so it's, yeah, I mean, it, it totally has changed my view. And uh, Andy, I mean, this isn't shallow, you know that. Andy has been an amazing example. He is out there doing the work, constantly inviting us to things, challenging us to get out there and do it, living the life in front of us. And um, that's had a huge impact on me as well. See, not all Christians are bad. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's, let's move on specifically to this idea and this model of monasticism. Do you find that appealing? Why, why not? And also for y'all listening right now, so when we talk about monasticism in this kind of an order, this is not one person up on a hill in their own little cave. This is in community. So it's, it's a different kind of model of, of uh, monasticism. I am totally for this. I, uh, one of the things I thought would be really neat, if I, had the, uh, if I had the extra cash, I would love to buy an apartment building, preferably near a school, and literally have a place where there's like communal living. I mean, everybody's got their own separate, you know, quarters, you know, for when they want to be alone or whatever. But the kitchen's communal. Uh, your entertainment areas are all communal. It just, and, and, and especially if you could fill it full of people who, who think a little bit, you know, that'd be kind of <laughs> nice. And, uh, and I always So a big library. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, hey, with, with, actually a communal library would be totally cool. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah, and where everybody contributes and, you know, here's my stack, you know. Yeah, that's... Uh, I don't know. That, that's crossing a line there, man. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I think everybody needs naughty books. But no, they, <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't make those anymore. It's all online. I know. I, li I like that. <laughs> Not the naughty books part, but <laughs> I mean, this, this is something that I think people have tried to, to redo in our time, and some have probably succeeded, and others have, have not, and it's been miserable. Uh, but there's a part of you. I, have you, any of y'all ever intentionally lived with other people outside of like college roommates? And yeah? Oh, yeah? Yes. All right, let's talk about that, then. That's a start. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, part of my story, I served as a young adult missionary with Methodist Church in Russia. Um, and so I was there for two and a half years. And so I lived with other missionaries, but also during our training was probably the most, um, crowded I've ever been in a space. There were about 20 of us living in a house that did not have space for 20 people. Um, and so every meal that it was people from all over the world and it was where we had to figure out how to get along with people who are radically different than ourselves. Um, and we made community norms and rules and we, you know, figured out agendas and it was only, like I said, about a month and a half, two months, but it was enough that. Um, it was challenging. I don't know if I could do that for years upon years upon years, just because there was time when I wanted my space and there is no space when you're living with a large community of people, even if you have your own room or bed or that kind of stuff, um, you can't really escape it. And so even with all my hyper extrovertedness, um, it's, it was tough for me. Yes, yeah, see, Janelle, even the extroverts have limits. 
I thought how difficult this would be for introverts, but I think maybe the extroverts will be the first ones out the door. Really? <laughs> they just drive each other crazy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, interesting. See, because if we had Mark's apartment complex, we would need an introverted room where only introverts are allowed in. And and here's what would happen. The extroverts would get bored and tired and then go nah. sick the introverts and go to the interview room. <laughs> <laughs> we get bored often. Uh-huh. I bet. Well, for me, I had an interesting experience because I was a resident assistant, right? And um, uh, we had kind of a unique situation at Indiana, Indiana University. Uh, in the fact that they had what they call language dorms. So you had to speak a particular language in that dorm, right? So we had to speak German all the time. We had a Russian. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. uh, and But what was kind of interesting about it, most of these people, the reason why they could speak German is because they had traveled. So they were a little bit older, right? They'd kind of seen the world before they got they pursued their education, or they were maybe pursuing their master's degrees. But nonetheless, it was a very interesting group of people. We had this Everybody had their own room. That, that was one of the benefits of living in this particular dorm situation. You didn't have to share a room, but you did have, you still had to share the bathroom and everything else. But we had this huge big common area that had this humongous fireplace. Uh, and so some of the times I cherish the most is sitting around and hearing the experiences from all these people in all these different kind of places. So that was a cool experience. I can kind of understand and relate to what you're saying is being able to share that experience through, with all these different people. It was, it was, it was a great experience, yeah. <laughs> it just occurred to me. The thing I described with everybody having an individual room and common area, it's also a description of jail. Hmm. I mean, I don't know whether that's relevant to the uh, to the thinking, but <laughs> and for the most part, everybody gets the same thing, right? Yeah, and, and, the dorm was the same. One. Yeah, and and I feel like in these monasteries, I mean, it's it is it's truly egalitarian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's mine is yours, and yours is mine, and we all get the same food. And I mean, sure, we have different gifts as far as you know work experiences. So somebody's like the gardening master, someone's the cooking master, and somebody's like, oh, I got to take care of the you know, electric and plumbing or whatever it is. I, I often wonder, like, what use would I be in those settings? Because I'm not a handyman. You can clean. I am a I'm a pretty good cleaner, but you, I would you yeah. would clean my room for me. <laughs> Mom, if you're listening, I promise it's true. Come visit. I'm a pretty clean guy. I've changed over the years. I think the difference between like jail, the panopticon, and the kind of community you're wanting to create is the relationships. And um, I mean, obviously, one does not have freedom and one does, but I think that the the goal of the panopticon is to always be watching so that you're always afraid. And I think as a community of committed people living together, like you can change that narrative so that, yeah, we're always going to see what you're doing. If you're slacking, we're going to get after you, but like you get to live your life um, and you get to make your choices and you still get to have some of those freedoms. Um, so maybe a, maybe that transition is much more about kind of attitude and community than, yeah, it may look similar, um, but it's about how do we process that that experience. I was going to say, since our uh, anarchist friends no longer live in Denver, um, Kyle and Piper would want to bring up, I don't, I've never pronounced the word out loud. It's either Rojava or Rojava. Um, it's a Kurdish colony that's formed that is radically egalitarian for every male in a position of power. There's a female and vice versa, um, radically sharing everything. But it, it's also an open air prison because it's surrounded by war on pretty much every side because it's boarding Syria and all the former Central Asian republics. Um, so it's, it's fascinating that it seems to be working, 
but it's also that kind of you're forced into the space where you have to kind of scrape out a living and so you find ways to do it um, similar to jail. And so, yeah, that connection is just, it's, it's interesting that that extreme need leads to that, that reliance in that kind of communal structure, um, no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting that term you used. Panopticon. Panopticon. That's, uh, that means uh, uh, pan, uh, almost like a universal vision. What's that mean? Right. Yeah. I mean, Foucault uses it as basically you have the watchtower that would be in the middle of the prison and they can see into oh, okay. every cell and they can right. see everything that happens. So it's a control mechanism. Okay. All right. I know exactly what you're talking about now, but. So what do y'all think about like the, the rhythms of this kind of living? So there's obviously the, the daily prayers and the readings, and then there's the meals that are shared together and the, all the, the chores are necessary, but the, every, every order, every monastic order has a rhythm. And then we have this Celtic way of life, which is very sacred. And it's like all, all of life is the kingdom of heaven on earth. It, Imagine that, what Jesus said they're trying to live. And I, I think that's why I do like the Celtic movement is it, it seems to be more in touch uh, with that, that understanding of the kingdom of heaven. But, like that first century. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's chosen. It's people who, wanted, who want to be in this together. And it's also for the benefit of the world. It's not, we're going to do this mm. with mm-hmm. just our own people. And like, no, we want people to come in from the outside and we're going to go to them as well. And I think that too is... Also, probably what, what I would say, if you're going to start a monastery of any kind, I mean, whether it's like a couple with another couple, like do it for the healing of the world, not just for your families. That would be something, something uh, to learn more about, the, 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 like you say, the almost uh, missionary sort of, like, like the, taking the learning that they preserved and then taking it out beyond uh, Ireland. Yeah. And, uh, and it's like, that'd be a neat thing to study how did they do that? Why did they do that? You know, and I think it goes back to your comment earlier about like, we have people that don't self reflect when they're in leadership. And I think the monastery model that we're talking about here, it forces that like, because some of those things that you do every day are forcing you to look inward. They're forcing you to look up. And so you can't escape like dealing with your shit. You, yeah. you have to, um, cause if you don't, other people are going to call you on it. If you're not, showing that you're responding to that. And I think that that piece of it is really, could really teach us a lot. So to be hospitable toward others, again, got to be hospitable toward yourself. And I think in, in this sense, you have that Trinitarian theology within the Celtic movement. Like that was big for them and it you'll see it in the crosses you always have the this interchangeable the best symbols they really do have the best symbols but it, it is it's truly a dance and i yeah. think that that it's an inward looking dance to the however you view the trinity whether you believe in it or not it could be viewed in so many different ways but i don't know what patrick would say if you were here today in the 21st century using western terms but i i, I do like this at perichoresis he probably wouldn't have used that i like that language and you're emptying yourself for the other um, and I think you see that in, in the Son, Jesus, and the Father, and the Spirit. So if humans then take on that model, right. I, I think that's what probably makes their theology was driving their community. And even, again, regardless if you're an atheist agnostic out there or another religion, and you're like, that's silly. But the model in practice is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. St. Patrick was an evangelist. He lived a life on mission. This... Uh, Good news. But going back to evangelicalism from even the last two weeks on the podcast, that's what it is. It's good news. Are there benefits to 
being a presenter, a missionary of good news, converting those to that news, or does that the sound of that just make you cringe deep down inside? Cringe, cringe. We have a we have cringe. a cringe over here. Any other cringes? Going once, going two cringes. Any? How many more cringes we got? Probably most of us <laughs> yeah. uh, have had experience with it. it, 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 it. I, the way I think of it now has more to do with uh, grace, which that was the original good news. Now, fortunately, I didn't come from uh, a, a situation where they use that term, um, so I can be more uh, uh, forgiving of it. But, uh, but no, I, uh, the way it was explained to me was a much more uh, attractive concept. So then if you, if you don't have the baggage and that word to you is pure, does that, can that be changed for those who are cringing right now and others who are listening who are cringing? And so many people who are like, ah, the whole conversion process and I'm used as, a t- as this like sort of means to an end for their you know, notch on the old belt for another <laughs> good news in the kingdom. Check, God, God loves that person because he has another Christian. And you know, that's a weird model that we've all experienced, but I don't know about, about you. I just don't see, I don't see that in the gospels. I do see evangelists. I do see people converting others. I just don't see it the way we see it today. Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's, always in, it's, it's always interesting to look at and get some kind of an idea of, of our perspective of how those people respond to that language and what drew the uh, language to that religion. We have no clue. I mean, I, I think maybe we do have some clues. When we look at that, that, that little piece that you provided me from the Catholic... What was it? The Wikipedia uh, uh, dictionary yeah. or whatever. Um, it made it very clear that every time he needed to encounter these people and tell the story, it wasn't by example. It was by miracle. Mm-hmm. I make this thing. In other words, this happened, and as a, and the people bowed down, this happened, and as a result, uh, they couldn't strike this person because they were frozen. There, there's all these ideas of. They converted because, particularly the leaders, because this happened to them, or because their particular God was didn't have as much power. That was a huge part of that story that I heard when mm-hmm. I was reading through this. So to me, it always comes back to that idea. So why did they become Catholic? Why did they become a believer? Why were they no longer a pagan, so to speak? Were they not? I mean, seriously, we, we, we really don't know. Our story right here is about St. Patrick, right? We have a pretty good idea. This person was totally passionate, was willing to give up anything and everything. He had this mission. Reminds me so much of Paul in a lot of ways that he almost felt inclined, like there's this timeline. He had so many things to do in this period of time. But where were the people in this process? That's the part that I don't know, right? It's It's... I'd like to think it was by example that he left this kind of, but but that's not what you hear from the story. It's like this miracle happened, this miracle happened, and now this person bows down, and now all of a sudden they move on, and this next leader is a challenge, and so you have to have this miracle. So it, it's one of those sort of things. I don't know where the people were in this process is, is, is the only thing. How, how necessary to the process of canonization are miracles? Because this is a Catholic source, and... Because uh, the the ones the the things I were reading I was reading, uh, including some that were Catholic, um, they did not emphasize miracles. In fact, they kind of didn't mention them. Um, so I wonder if that has something to do with a reverence for the guy as a saint, 
you know, the, the, the mention of all of miracles. I'm, I'm one of those, uh, I've got a, I got a, if there's something that I don't believe, I will shelf it, you know, put it on the shelf. It's there. If I find anything that, uh, you know, that uh, sounds legitimate, I, I'll come back and look at it. So I don't reject ideas, but uh, for me, miracles are kind of pretty much shelved. And I also wonder, you know, miracles for a druidic kind of naturalistic spirituality, you know, miracles in the natural world are something they could connect with. And so this goes back to what Ryan started with in the very beginning, um, whether these stories are factually accurate versus if they're told and there's truth in them. Um, saying, you know, well, Patrick did this miracle and this king converted, that's going to carry more power with the common people mm -hmm. than saying, you know, we had one-on-one -on -one conversations for six months and I decided to become a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wonder how much of that goes into how these stories are told and which ones get passed down because the miracle is going to stick in the mind of the people and that's going to be a tool to kind of bring in more folks within that that worldview. Also, the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the Druid system was very much authoritarian. When people are raised in an authoritarian uh, uh, milieu, they are uh, more naturally uh, attracted to an authoritarian, uh, other authoritarian views. And so, uh, you know, perhaps that's one of the ways that uh, made it easier to convert them because there is a definite hierarchy. I want to jump back really quick, Ryan, to what you said about good news and I guess the question is how we define that good news. Yeah. So if you define good news as I'm going to heaven when I die, um, that's going to change how you motivate, how you right. evangelize, how you try and build a movement. If that good news is we have a radical new way of living in community, <laughs> that's a very different kind of evangelism. I can get behind that good news. Yeah. I could care less about what happens when we die. I actually won't say I could care less, but it is very, very low on the list of things that kind of occupy my mind. I'm fully with you. And I think that if you actually read the gospels in context, if anybody did that without just it falling out of the sky, 20, 21st century, I think you will find that, that you'll find that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Here's the good news of Jesus, not Rome. Here's liberation in the way of the cross, not the way that puts people on crosses. I think you'll, you'll see a totally different movement of people. And I think you see that within the early church, that it was less about when you die and more about, Hey, what's happening right now? It's how you live. It's, it's again, all you gotta do is read the gospels <laughs> in context. <laughs> so, so with that, is that good news worth sharing for people who are oppressed and who are on the fringe and who are down and out? That there's a radical new way to live in community and that we can support each other. Absolutely. Um, I, I worry that the voices sharing that good news are drowned out by the voices sharing a kind of good news that I would say isn't good news. I, I worry that, we can't necessarily reclaim that that labeling and that messaging anymore because so many people hear evangelical or evangelism and they think conservative, southern, you know, hates the gays, doesn't want, um, you know, the poor people to have. Think it, it's a caricature that comes to mind for most people. I'm not saying it's fair or it's right, but I don't know if we can separate from that caricature anymore. Not to continue to beat my own favorite dead horse, but, uh, but again, uh, with psychological motivation. One of the things is the loudest people are those who have a psychological need to be heard. And so a lot of, you know, when we stereotype, you know, uh, bad religion, if you want to call it that, when we stereotype that, it's easy to stereotype because we hear them, you know. 
and 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 so so uh, uh, the, the 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 rational people tend not to shout so much. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not sure where I was going with that, but uh, there it is. There it is. <laughs> well, the idea of of the good news. Um, you know, it, it's amazing how things change as we go through life. And just in the last couple of weeks, um, well, the movie that we went to see the other that, that we had the other night was, was was pretty incredible for me from the standpoint of, you know, having been raised in, in, in a Catholic, I mean, a Christian family, and I didn't realize until a month ago that they were evangelical. You know, I, I, I never associated Lutheran with being evangelical. But I'm all so of a sudden jealous. I came to realize that that they were. You know, that, that that's that that's essentially what they what they are, not what they were. I was to some degree. So when I think about the idea of the good news, that idea of good news was in the context of that religion. It was how they said the good news was. After seeing this movie, and, and quite honestly, it, it put me off. In other words, the Bible represented that. I didn't really, it wasn't, you know, I've read it and, and gone through it and studied it, but I've pulled away from it. But to have that experience of just a few weeks ago and to go back and go, I need to read this again, because realizing that the good news is your relationship with your spirit, if you want to call it God or whatever, it's its your personal relationship. What does this mean to you? I, I just... To me, that's so important for us to, to, to revisit that, not in the context of how somebody else is telling you to do it. That, the good news is not how the church is telling you to, to see that. It's the relationship that you can now look inside and open up to this other eye, this thing that, that's always been there, but you have an opportunity to, to re-experience it. So I, I thought it was just a great movie that we saw the other night. So the movie that uh, Terry's speaking of is Rob Bell, The Heretic. It's a documentary by Andrew... Is it... Oh, is it Wilson? Sorry, Andrew. Nah. But uh, Rob Bell, the heretic, look it up. Yeah, I think I think evangelism. I, it's just hard. It's a hard word. And when you said convert, I had like a visceral response in, response in my core because um, the way that that word has been used. I mean, I came from a tradition where I had to count for my minister's license, how many people got saved under my ministry in the previous year, how many people got sanctified. And and the more I look back on that, the more disturbing it becomes pretty regularly. Um, But I, I, I don't have a complete thought here, but I was thinking about how else we use that word convert. And the thing that comes to mind is like computer programs, um, converting file types from one to another, uh, like so music can go from an mp3 to an mp4 or you can have a word doc go to a pdf and what's interesting about that analogy is that we're at, the thing doesn't change it changes its label and it changes its maybe its presentation but it actually the core of it doesn't change and so like what is I don't know, like, how does that inform, like, the way that we've used the word? We've used convert to mean that you really become something other than what you were. Um, but it's, but maybe, maybe I just don't know the etymology, but like, but now that word means that you're just changing the accessibility to it and the way that it presents itself. 
I would, I would say that in some ways it's okay to say you're being converted and guiding people through conversion as long as it's not authoritative, top-down, unhealthy. Like, and I, I think, by the way, Janelle, that you actually lead people through conversion all the time who have been hurt and damaged by the church and you're converting them to their true self. So the darkness actually was what people in the church did to them the way they yeah. thought, the way they feel about themselves. And then you're coming alongside of them and you're moving them to this place of light. And I think what you have here, even within what we're talking about with St. Saint, Saint Patty and the Celtic movement, is that uh, this this was ultimately the same, it was the same thing. I mean, the church was the one that was the, the bad guy to a degree. And you're trying to free people from the trappings of religion to how religion should be and how, how it can be good and how... Yeah. Because religion is not a bad bad thing. Everybody's religious, and everybody's spiritual. People say, "Oh, I'm spiritual, but not religious." That's bullshit. Everyone's religious. It's just there's just bad religion trappings on people. So I think you convert people all the time, but it's healthy, and it's freeing, and it gives, and it's vulnerable, and it's egalitarian, and that's that's the difference, perhaps. And you're not trying them to like adhere to your tenets of faith and this intellectual right. ascent that you have. Like, no, like whatever beliefs you have, it's fine. It's your identity. It's the core of who you are. It's the uh, what we would call the beloved of God, a son or daughter of God, things that people just have never heard or experienced because they've they felt like I'm just this, whether it's redheaded stepchild or orphan, whatever metaphor you have, they've never felt like a child of God. And you're yeah. like, you're trying to get them to feel that for the first time. It's who they've always been, like you said. Yeah. The conversion's still, your identity is always going to be good. It's just they've never experienced that good. That is the good news. The beloved of God. That is, is neat because it's what you were talking about. It, it, are we welcome in the universe? Now, the, if God created the universe, then fine. Are we welcome of God? Is the universe a welcoming place? Are you the beloved of God? That, and if that is your message, that is the good news. And this, and, and, and when I came to this, it was uh, thinking about uh, the Jews. You know, living uh, as a little community among all these giants, you know, the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians and all this, they're, they're pushed around, and the only thing they had was this God that loved them no matter what. Yeah. They were welcome in the universe. It's a, so that's, that's, that's what I mean when I refer to good news as not being necessarily a bad-sounding term. So Janelle, I heard you going in a bit of a different direction with almost like code switching, like how we present this term in different spaces, mm, um, yeah. because the term missionary is one that I kind of heard through this quite a bit, and Patrick being a missionary. Um, and I think of my time serving as a missionary, and I would at times say I'm a missionary with Methodist Church, or I would say I'm a faith-rooted organizer, or I am a immigrant rights advocate, or shifting that space. and there was always a feeling of almost an inauthenticity in that because I'm changing based on the audience. So am I really being honest with you if I'm going to change what I'm saying when I'm talking to you or when I'm talking to you and talking to you? And so that, that once again, that good news, if we want to hold on to good news and say, this is my message, but I'm going to change it for all these different people or adapt it, are we being authentic? Like, what does authenticity <laughs> look like in that space? That's, that's a great Sorry, question. Sorry, that's a whole other rabbit well, no. that, but that's where my mind was going. Well, there. I mean, I think part of that too... Um, it depends on, on personality types in some ways, like how stringent you are about that. Um, I would probably not use the word conversion at all. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know right now. I don't know what how I would even describe like evangelism or sharing that. Um, but yeah, I think for authenticity, like even it, naming it differently, if you're still living out the same thing, I think I can be more comfortable with that now. Um, it's when people are forcing me to take on a label to be something that's incongruous with me, but it's quote unquote better. That's way off inauthentic. Um, or when you say that, for instance, the tradition I came from, well, now I'm holy, I'm sanctified, and I don't sin anymore. That is a steaming pile of, you know, the stuff. Because that's not true. It's not authentic. It's not real. And you're not even willing, when that's where the conversation is, you're not even willing to, to talk about the hardness and the difficulty and those things. And that's... Yeah, I think what you describe is fine. I don't really have a problem with that. It's how are you living this out and where, what's, what's coming out of that and what you call it is, honestly, it's a personal choice. In some cases, it may be a safety choice. Mm-hmm. Um, or pragmatic. Just or pragmatic. It's more strategic to call myself this For this, that. yeah. And I think that's, yeah, there are times in my life when I would have been like so furious at you. But like, but now I, I see the reason why we do that. If we want to have a voice in a public space, maybe being the pastor isn't the best thing, or maybe it is. I mean, just depending on what you do. Um, good question. Well, that idea of conversion, that was one thing that when Pam was talking, that whole idea of did Paul convert yeah, yeah. is that real big crossover point, right? In other words, there, the, the, and, the, and you know, there's been so much hate even around that idea of, see, he turned away from his, from his Jewish roots because they were wrong. He converted to this other idea. Jew, you know, being Jewish was wrong. They, they had the wrong story. Uh, you know, Paul had the divine, you know, uh, presence about him to be able to go, that doesn't mean anything. But if, if we pull back and look at it, and I think she did a great job and, 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 and say, it's not about that. For the longest time, the problem that I had with Paul was there's so it's so easy to look at all those pieces and parts and go, God, he is a misogynist. You know, he was this, he was all that. And you go, well, wait a second. We had no clue what he was, and we don't even know who he was even talking to. We don't even know what the context of the story was. People just happened to remember these parts about this. And, and, and to me, that's a, that's a really important part of the story, because it's just like what you're saying, Andy. We want so much to be consistent with our ideas and the way that we present this message that we forget there's this other person that we're talking to and they're in a different place. They're not going to understand anything in the context of where we're coming from. And that's not what the purpose of this perfection is. The perfection is for both of us to meet in the middle and find out where, where they are and to be able to talk to them at that level. If somebody's copying that down or recording that in the process, that's their issue. That is a personal thing between those two people or that congregation, whatever, in that, in that space. It means something only in that space. And I think that's something that we, we find that, that if we pull away from it and go, I didn't say the right thing. I should have said this. You're not in that moment anymore. You know, it, it, there's no value in that. 
It's that passion that you had with it. And if you truly opened up and were a loving presence in that discussion or wherever you were at, it's perfect. You know, what the person got out of it, it really comes down to what did you come away from it with? I think that's really, really important. And this, this thing, we, we, we think we're trying to move other people. I think that's where we get into problems a lot of times is trying to change that other person yeah. and trying to make them something else. And, you know, going back to my, my uh, BS, the, uh, that's a neurotic thing, having to change other people. It's quite simply. I mean, if I, if I have to change you, I'm changing you because I can't change. I have to make you conform to what I need. And so actually there's there's hmm. that's a piece of truth. I think from the evangelical experience, maybe I am changing you because I can't change. Because I can't I can't get right with God. I can't fix everything in me that is still tempting me or causing me to stumble or whatever. So, but I can fix you because I know the equation for that. It's that if you were to die tonight, where would you go? And you say, hell, well, I can fix that. Say this. Like, that's really, that's a really helpful insight. Like, and goes back to what you said earlier, too, about leadership, not reflecting. Like, if we want to actually help cultivate change, we have to deal with that first. Yeah, all very good stuff. So I think this is it for the night, but... Man, that was fun and deep, and this was very different from my conversation last week. I gotta say that, and I think every single I was I would say this to people, you know, like come again next week. The conversation totally is gonna different. totally change, even at the same topic. Uh, hope you guys do this in your pub communities next year, because St. Patty's comes every year on March 17th. Raise a pint to St. Patty's. Cheers. 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 <laughs>